if you're following along with us with your books, <coughs> which is Demystifying Patanjali, based on the wisdom of Paramhans Yogananda, his interpretations through Swamiji of the sutras. We are on page 128 and the 46th sutra of the second pad, the sadhana pad. <coughs> Thus far we've covered the yams and the niyams, you know, those first two stages of ashtang. And uh, one thing I never really got to mention but is very helpful for us when we are looking at ashtanga especially is that each of these eight stages, each of these eight limbs correspond to um, our chakras. Now that's important for us from the perspective primarily of understanding that, you know, a lot of people talk about how can I awaken my chakras? <laughs> oh, what can I do? They think that there's some magic mantra that I will say and oh, if I just chant Om enough times at that place, somehow that's what's going to do it. But again, practical. Oh, if you can't establish yourself in the yams, then your root chakra, chakra the muladhar, it's never going to really have enough power to awaken. If you don't establish yourself in the niyams, then your swadhisthan isn't going to have enough power to awaken. And so it's not just let me meditate, let me chant Om there, let me do the, you know, visualize the colors of my chakras. And we love how that esoteric, uh, mystical realities of these centers, but then we're not so interested in what is it, what power flows through them and especially of the yamas and the niyamas, which is the foundation, and that's why they're so closely related. The first two chakras are almost, you can say, twin chakras. They're just an inch and a half apart from one another and have a very similar energy. When we go into the interpretations of the Mahabharata and Gita, uh, Yogananda called them the twin brothers of the Pandavas, the Nakula and Sahadev. And so that's their energy, you know, that really... Um, establishing before we do anything on a more external level our relationship with the world that's what those two lower chakras really represent our relationship with the manifested world then we come to the third center which is the Manipur the fire center which is self-control and that's where asan comes in and where we had left off last time was asan means to be seated in a firm pleasant and relaxed position. And we went a little bit into each of these three qualities that uh, Patanjali brings about. Firm, which of course just means that, you know, it's not just bad guy. Oh, dhyan karne wale chalo bad jate Where, what's your intention? Where's that firmness? You know, when we come to this chakra, who, who comes here in the Pandavas is Arjuna, is that warrior. So Arjuna can't just come around and slump and sit down. Arjuna will come with a lot of awareness, a lot of intention. In fact, the fact that Arjuna is supposed to be the best at the bow, Yogananda also revealed that that bow, in fact, represents again the spine, the string of the spine and the front of how the body needs to be held. And that's what is the bow of the actual bow. And then the arrow is the arrow of concentration. And we know from the story of Arjuna saying, I only see the eye of the bird, that's how deeply concentrated he was, but first established because his asan, that perfect control of the physical body, 
was established. So firmness is, of course, the most important. Then pleasant. We talked about, about pleasant because our idea of pleasant, if I ask you, sit in a pleasant position. <laughs> you know, it's like, this is pleasant for me. But firm, but then pleasant, which means then you have to enjoy that firmness. It can't be, you have to start really enjoying what it feels like always to have a firm spine at all times. Can't be about your meditation alone. Can't be when you know, we'll just be however we want to be. So I need to start enjoying what it feels like to be firm in my body, which means to be mindful in my body. That's where Hatha Yoga has such a wonderful, you can say, influence because it's mindful firmness. We talked about how you have to put yourself in a dis, kind of an uncomfortable position, but then enjoy that and just hold that position for as long as you can. And then, of course, relaxation comes in after that. When you start enjoying it, automatically that little tension that comes when I say, sit up straight, you know, everybody gets tense. You can't be tense in meditation. If you get tense, your meditation is not really going to work. So that deeper relaxation has to always come as well. He then kind of quantifies or adds on to that in the 47th Sutra saying, by reducing one's natural tendency toward restlessness and by visualizing infinity, troop posture is acquired. Very weird thing to say. Oh, if you visualize infinity, then only you'll get into true posture. Now, what does that mean? Of course, the first line is by reducing one's natural tendency towards restlessness. How are we going to reduce our tendency towards restlessness? There are several practical ways to do that. We do the tensing and relaxing, which again helps open the flow of energy. If there aren't too many blocks in your body, then that restlessness is easier to overcome. But then also, a little bit of self-control is needed. When we sit to meditate, if we give in every few seconds to every little movement you want to make, or every little adjustment you want to make, every little scratch you want to you know, do, that's going to make it very hard. And a lot of people we see who, you know, they come and they say, I've been meditating for 10 years, I've been meditating for 15 years, I've been meditating for a long time. But you ask them about how deep their meditations have gone, and sometimes you really receive that not that deep at all. And then when you see them meditate, you see that they're actually very restless. And you see that they can sit for three hours. You can see that they can sit for long times. They've built a certain resistance but in the process of actually sitting there for three hours, they're constantly shifting, fidgeting, moving. And that's one of the key reasons why they're not able to go that deep. That interiorization never truly takes place because the body is still pulling and calling most of their attention and energy. Of course, the yamas and the niyamas help greatly in reducing restlessness because they essentially cleanse the body of the inner toxins. But then we're constantly putting toxins in also through just our environment, putting in through the air we breathe, through the food we eat. So a lot of that kind of comes into play with the body. So you've got that relaxation that is very important to remove restlessness. But the second thing is actually a, a great, we can say, hack, like a shortcut. Visualizing infinity. 
Swamiji often talks about before you sit to meditate, always visualize yourself as if you're suspended in space. And right in front of you, he writes over here, you know, you're sitting very still, gaze millions of miles, you know, right ahead of you, just see infinite space you know, behind you, to the side, above. And the idea being is for us to kind of get into the space where we feel that we're weightless. If you can experience weightlessness, all restlessness goes away, all movement of the body goes away. And it's a great, 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 great tool to get to a very still, relaxed, firm position very quickly. So this is a you know, wonderful you say, suggestion for all of us to start our meditations with. Really first tune into infinity. It helps also in another ways, really helps expand your consciousness. It just opens the mind to start wanting to say, oh wow, just all the way there, all the way there, all the way on this side. And it's just a great, great setting for meditation to truly begin. And he says, from this point, the dualities cease to disturb. From this point, meaning not just asana alone, the three points, yam, niyam, asana. If you get these three, then the external dualities, where, which means where the world calls out to you, whether out to your body or what is happening in ourselves. What, is, what are we being called to? We are being called to our desires. We are being called by our regrets. We are being called by what Fear. I said to that person. Fear. By our fears, by our worries, by you know, our feelings. Everything that we think that kind of draws us back out, that's where duality exists. That starts to kind of slow down. Then comes the next stage. And the next stage is pranayam. Pranayam is here up at the heart center. And the heart center controls, you know, what primarily the breathing. And so therefore pranayam has a lot to do with breath. But of course, in essence, it has to do with prana. And he says, the next stage in meditation is to calm the flow of the inner life force. So you can get the external dualities to cease a little bit, but there's an inner duality. And this is the duality of the astral body, of the ira and the pingala, that continues even when external duality cease. That's why after death, it doesn't mean you're free, because inner dualities still exist in the astral world. And then when the energy of the physical world once again becomes strong enough, it draws the soul back to birth. So death itself, when all external dualities cease, we still carry with us all the inner dualities. And even in meditation, what is meditation in essence is a replication of death. Because you interiorize enough of your energy, the body now has no reality to you. And that's what perfect asan should emulate. Body doesn't exist. Wow, I am not this body. Then we move from the physical world into the astral world. We move from the anamaya kosh into the pranamaya kosh. And these are the stages of meditation that are very important. If we stay in the anamaya kosh throughout the hour of meditation, not much is achieved. You feel good, you feel calm, you feel you know, all the things. Oh, I feel very clear, I made wonderful decisions in my meditation. I know exactly which brand of cereal I'm going to buy tomorrow. But not much happens because we've not made we've not made that shift from the physical body into the astral body. Pranayam is where the astral body starts to get into play. And pranayam 
which I like how Patanjali has put it because the name of the words is pranayam, control of the prana. But Patanjali is putting it a lot more sweetly, in which he says it is the calming of the inner force. That's what calmness means. We don't usually bring calmness and control in the same flow. But when you are calm, that means you are in absolute command of yourself. When you are agitated, which means you've lost control. And it's true for your inner prana as well. When the prana is calm, meaning it's still, you're in command. You've controlled it. You have absolute mastery over it. The moment it flows without your kind of giving it permission to do so, means you don't have control over your own prana. And that's where pranayam comes in. In the next uh, thing he tells, what kind of ways can pranayam be achieved through? And he doesn't give any specific technique. You see, this is what, to a certain degree, is wonderful about uh, Patanjali. He's giving us principles. And it's up to us to find ways that we're going to get into those principles, into those qualities, into those states of consciousness. So over here, he just gives a very, very generic kind of option. Like says, the emphasis while breathing may be more on the inhalation, it could be on the exhalation or on stillness, which means the gap between inhalation and exhalation. It may be on space entering the body rather than on the body's breathing. It could be on the timing of your inhalation and exhalation, or it could be the number of counts in your each inflow and outflow, whether the flow be short or long. So what's he really telling us? He's saying, by becoming aware of your breath, by any of these different ways, you can learn how to calm prana. Now it doesn't matter. A lot of people will fight and say, oh, no, no, we have to do even count breathing. Someone will say, anulom, vilom, karo, koi bol He doesn't care. He's like, you do whatever you want with your breath. You want to watch your breath, watch your breath. You want to count your breath, count your breath. You want to hold your breath, hold your breath. You want to focus on the inhalation more, do that. What he's saying is by breath awareness, we naturally become more aware and more in control of that prana. Because it's important to realize that it is the movement in the ida and pingala which creates breath. And that's again, these are the little hacks that are very important for us to know. Because oftentimes people just say, achalo abhi pranayam karenge, kar kyu rahe hai? What's, what's that relationship? Why, am I, why is breath such a central reality in yoga? It's because it is the one way for you to have some tangible understanding of the flow of prana in your spine. So whenever energy rises up in the ida, an inhalation is created. And whenever energy descends in the pingala, an exhalation is created, which means as I start to understand the inhalation and exhalation and I watch it, I start to get very comfortably familiar with the flow of prana in my inner spine. Now, each of us who practice Hong So, we know that when we're practicing Hong So, after we shift into Hong So in the spine, that's an entirely different practice altogether. It's an entirely different quality of recognizing that first is focusing on the physical breath and the second is focusing on the astral breath. Because even when physical breath stops, the astral movements continue. Again, you're, we're really watching the death process here. 
you get to breathlessness, and this is what he says in the second, in the next sutra, 51st. There is a fourth kind of pranayam which occurs during breathlessness. When one ceases to be aware of the outer world and the body. And this is the kind of pranayam we're interested in practicing. Because one is where we just kind of get calm and it's like, oh, you're, you're getting agitated, breathe, count your breathing, do whatever you need to. And that calms us down and it brings some sort of control into the body. But we're trying to separate from the body. We're trying to move, you know, between koshas. We're trying to move between bodies. And that's very important for the yogi to always remember. You can't sit down to meditate and not have that clearly in your mind. My job is to detach from the physical body. You can't be sitting there and going through your pranayams, doing all your techniques and be fully present in the body. It's just pointless. So you have to be very mindful. That's why he's laid it out so beautifully for us. Am I here? Have I achieved this stage? If I'm not achieving it, I need to go back a little bit. And for most of us, and that's how we started, <laughs> we're not achieving yama niyam. So our meditations are lousy. And so we have to keep going back and keep looking at our daily lives and making sure that non-lying is happening, that non-violence in thought and deed and intention is happening, that everything we're putting out into the world is coming from that very aware, very intentional, this is what I want, I'm looking for freedom. In consequence, the veil hiding the inner light is removed. So this is where, he says, that's where the line is drawn. The physical body is lost in breathlessness. And now you get to be completely in the astral body, in the light. And that's what the astral body is. It's a body of color. It's a body of light. And that experience then begins to come to the practitioner. Then the mind becomes fit for true concentration. Why does it become then? Because once all the prana is in your control. Now you actually have the prana, it's available to you. It's not going here and there. It's not kind of directing the show. You have now gotten it and now you get to choose ye kahan jayega. And that's when concentration can be started to be achieved. All right, now I have the prana in my hand, up to yahanja. Now this is where I want you to be directed. The fifth stage on the path of contemplation is known as pratyahar interiorization of the mind when the senses are withdrawn and the chitta is calm. Now, another part of meditation that people don't really tune into is meditation really is doing what we do in the external world, but doing it off the internal world. Which means people think meditation is about shutting down the senses. It's not about shutting the senses, it's about redirecting them. It's a, because we still need to get to the point where we are absorbed and concentrated. The senses are needed to be absorbed and concentrated. But now my senses need to want to explore an inner world. It wants to need to explore the astral world. Because we're so hypnotized and so much in love with this external world, our senses don't want to let it go. But the moment we're able to break through after pranayam, the interiorization process is ab mujhe, rather than listening to the honks of the cars outside and listening to people, I want to hear the inner sounds. Rather than seeing people and this carpet and the world around me, I want to see the inner light. 
rather than experiencing the physical body and touch, I want to experience the inner sensations. So meditation isn't ki band kar do sab ko. It is take the same experience that you are so enamored by outside of you and make yourself enamored by the inner world. So until we don't really enjoy the inner world and are as hypnotized by the inner world as we are hypnotized by the external world, we will never want to keep going in. Because nothing happened. We didn't turn the way Yogananda Ji called it. He said, turning the searchlights inward. We have to take the sense telephones and start turning them inward. This is a, why we practice Om technique which is a very, very, very important technique on our path, which is because we listen to the sounds of Om, we listen to the sounds of the chakras, and it is supposed to enamor us, to hypnotize us, to make us feel, Mujhe ye sunna hai. I don't want to hear the, you know, the nonsense on television, I don't want to hear what people are saying, I don't want to hear the sounds of the world, I want to hear the sounds of my chakras. And I want to get so completely involved in them. That's what Pratyahar means. It's not some sort of, sab band kar diya and... You know, we can't shut things out. We can only redirect things. If we shut, we have to use force. When we use force, tension comes in. But when we are falling in love with something else, then we're just giving into it. We just surrender to that flow. And that's what Pratyahara is. It's this, now you have your prana, now surrender it to the inner world. Explore the inner world. Feel the inner world, hear the inner world, see the inner world. All the sense pleasures that you seek, seek it now inside yourself. So you see, it's a very fulfilling experience as opposed to a rejecting of the world experience. It's like saying, here's gold and here's sand and choose. Oh, let's choose the gold. <laughs> kind of makes sense. So choose an experience that's actually going to be so much more enjoyable, so much more relishing. And so we have to enter meditation with that hope and that intention and with that really joyful expectation. Otherwise, again, we're just always on the surface. We remain in the body and in our senses, in our external senses, because pratyahar doesn't happen. And the last sutra for this pad, which is always a wonderful thing to know we're making progress, is from this follows supreme mastery over the senses. As we do this often, more and more and more and more, supreme mastery of the senses occur. And this is again very, very vital for our meditations. We need to have absolute uh, mastery over our senses, to be able to shut them to the external world at will as opposed to through the slow and long process of sitting there and keep hoping eventually it should be I sit, I'm gone I don't need to go through so much just to prepare myself to enter so till Pratyahar we're still there's work that has to be done from Pratyahar on and that's why you can see why Patanjali is even separated this. It's interesting that he's said, okay, at Pratyahara, I'm going to close the sadhana chapter and I'm going to take dharan, dhyana and samadhi into another pad altogether, into another, because in his mind, it's a wholly 
different experience. Also, I forgot to mention that Pratyahara, of course, is the fifth chakra, the Vishuddha. And this helps also for us when we're trying to meditate and I'm having trouble. If I'm feeling restless, get to the Manipur, focus on the Manipur, get some energy going there, help it bring a little self-control, a little stillness in the body. If you're having trouble with your pranayama and your feelings and your energy is going hither and thither, focus on the heart center because that will help enhance your pranayama. If you're not able to interiorize enough, focus on the uh, Vishuddha. So you see, the, these are things, not just key, when will they awaken, but how can I use them to achieve these stages, these states of experience. All right, we're in Vibhuti path now. Vibhuti as in, you know, what is, what comes to us after. It's almost like Prasad. And Vibhuti is used as, well, the ash after the burning after the ritual is over, after all that you could throw into it, you've thrown into it, everything that you could give it, you've given it. And what remains? And that's really taken as prasad. It's not taken as, oh, sab jal gaya hai. You know, we don't see it as what I've given to God, what remains from what I have given to Him, this is what I'm looking for. So what I receive now, sadhana is what I was doing to what I was giving, vibhuti is what am I going to receive now, Swamiji uh, titles it the accomplishments. The first sutra here is Dharan is concentration, fixing one's full attention on one place, object, or idea at a time. Now, of course, we're, we've made a shift, haven't we? Um, we had the Anmaya Kosh, we've got the Pranmaya Kosh. From there comes the Manomekosh. The Manomekosh is where Pratyahara takes place, where all the senses feed the mind. Now, from this point on, we enter the Vigyanamekosh. The Vigyanamekosh is the causal world. We've moved from the astral world now. This is the world of ideational, but for us, more importantly, the world of intuition. So this is where we want to be. This is where our meditations need to take us. And in here, the primary tool is our absolute focus. Now, once we've experienced something, once your senses have turned inward, whether you hear a sound, whether you hear, see light, whether you, some feeling comes, we've got the eight aspects of God. What is Yoganandaji's definition of meditation? Is meditation is concentration on God or one of his eight aspects which is that's what it means. Once you've turned your searchlights inward, what do you find inside you? What is the most tangible experience you're having? Are you hearing things? Are you seeing things? Are you feeling things? Whatever that is, that has to become the object now because it can't be vague. If I just say, Yaha concentrate, karo, uspe concentrate, karo, khud banao kuch, which is often what happens is where I, kuch aani rai, I have to just visualize. Okay, I'm seeing my Guru's picture here, I'm seeing light, but that's not going to have power to hold you. What is it that you're naturally experiencing when your senses turn inward? Make that now the object of Isko Dekho Bas. Because Karna Kya what is what is the idea behind meditation is that I have to become completely absorbed, completely usme magno ho jana hai. That's what uniting means. I'm trying to get absorbed into something. When we're in love, our intention is to get completely united 
with the object of our love. That is why we are constantly calling them and we're constantly trying to be around them. And even the very act of love making is this intention and that's how intense in fact one of Yogananda's definition of meditation is making love to God because that's how passionate and intense our meditation has to be it's not a dry bad breath it has to be I love you so much I can't stay away from you I want to just get in you I want to become one with you and that's where concentration is so important, which means nothing else exists but. That's what concentration means. I'm concentrated on this book, means nothing else should exist for me. No other reality should hold. And we get concentrated sometimes in life, often on in television. TV Because we're just concentrated. All our energy, all our prana has started to move in one direction and that's for us the next stage but concentration if you don't have a tangible experience if you're not seeing something if you're not feeling something if you're not experiencing something internally what are you going to concentrate on that becomes the hardest part so therefore pratyahar is so important andar jana bahuti important and that's what we have to aim for. Then comes Dhyan, of course. Dhyan, which is meditation. What's fun about this process is, we've not been meditating up till this point. We've just been trying to get to a point of meditation. Now, Patanjali says, oh, now your meditation starts. Which is true. Yoganandaji said, true meditation only begins once you enter the Shushumna. So, for all of us who claim we've been meditating for so many years, this is where our claim falls flat on its face. Oh, <laughs> Which means again, you have to enter into the channel which takes you through to the causal world. You have to even go past the astral world in meditation. And that's only from Vijnanamaya Kosh onwards, that intuitional space of knowing does true meditation begin. Now, what is meditation here? Patanjali defines meditation as meditation is concentration on higher aspects of reality. Pretty much exactly what Yoganandaji was saying on God or one of his eight aspects. So when you're fully concentrated, what's happening now in meditation? When we get concentrated, this is the next way to define meditation on the third sutra. When the subject, which is us, the person who's meditating, and the object of his meditation, God in this particular case, become one. That is samadhi. So when we're deeply concentrated and we shift from concentration into absorption, we get into a meditative state and from absorption when we move into complete union where I can, can no longer tell if I'm, what I'm focusing on, whether it's separate from me at all anymore. And for those of us who practice the OM technique, you know, we always talk about that the experience of Samadhi for most of us will come first through OM, what's uh, Yoganandaji called OM Samadhi. That's our primary intention. Hear the sound, 
get into the sound and then become the sound. When you can become the sound and then when you can expand that sound in all directions. This is the, you can say, the um, subtle difference between meditation and samadhi. Meditation may the object and the subject become one. In samadhi, the oneness of the object and the subject is all that exists. So this same oneness exists absolutely everywhere. So it's an expanded state. Meditation is a, you can say, localized state of experience. Samadhi is the expanded state of experience. And that's again so important for us. So when we're saying concentrate on the light, concentrate on what you're feeling, it doesn't mean that that's what we're trying to do is just focus on it is we have to become it. The more you concentrate on it, the more you'll start absorbing yourself into it and little by little the lines of distinction will start to blur. Pele ye mehu, and this is the thing I'm focusing on and they start getting closer, 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 closer until they completely unite. And so often as a visualization we'll say, see the light and then try to bring the light closer to you. See that it's growing, it's growing, it's growing until it completely washes through you. So you wanna, these visualizations help greatly because they, they just allow you to understand that when the experience does come, because it doesn't always come, what should I do with it? How should I kind of go about it? Ab dikto kuch, ab kya karu? And a lot of people stop at, oh, thoda light digya. And that's where they kind of say, my meditation is successful. They don't go the next step. They get to pratyahar and they kind of stop there. They don't go into the pad. They don't go into those last three stages of now just focus single pointed there and let that object begin to come to you and become one with you and then together that oneness expanding it everywhere, everywhere, everywhere as far as you can until all that ex ex exists in this universe is that experience and that is samadhi, that oneness with everything when these three, which is the dharan, dhyan, and samadhi, are all directed toward their end, that is sam, samyam, attunement with or absorption in. Now, uh, Patanjali uses this term samyam, which is like samajana, complete. Um, it comes yam, of course, means control, but in this particular case, it, it's defined as to be bound with. It's a binding of. So Patanjali defines these last three stages together as samyam. This is the stage of binding. Meaning you get into a meditation, but if you don't get into these three stages, you don't bind with it. You don't completely identify with it. You still come back and identify with the ego. But when we are in meditation and we keep seeing a light, for example, and we bind with that light, we come back and now we feel we're more identified with light than with this body. When you have an experience of love in meditation and you bind with that love, then when you come out of your meditation, you will identify more with love than with any other experience. And so that's very, very important. And that happens when? After the technique is dropped. That's why for us, it's so important. You take a technique, then you have to let go of the technique and you have to bind with the object that comes. Otherwise, log hongsome lagerete, kriya mehi lagerete. 
in fact, uh, Lahiri Mahashaya would really focus on that period of silence after the technique. That was for him more important often, although it's hard to say because for us the technique is really what generates some form of an experience. If I don't do enough Kriyas, I know I'm not going to have enough of an experience to even bind with. But we have that experience and then five minutes later we're already in the Om or we're already wanting to move to the next thing because that inner restlessness doesn't allow us to stay. But this is what Samyam is. Bind with what you have brought brought forth in your meditation. Don't move on to the next thing. Get into dharan, get into dhyan, get into some form of the closest experience of samadhi at least that you can have because then when you come out of your meditation, that experience is what you will bring. Otherwise, you don't bring that. You're not bringing that into your life, you see. You just had it in your meditation and it's just a localized phenomena happening at that time when you sat and then you're back to your restless self, you're back to your judgmental self, you're back to your critical self. You've not brought any experience with you because you've not bound with that experience. So this word samyam is a very key and very crucial word for us. Bind with. Otherwise, your meditation remains just that momentary experience. Oh, it's a good place to stop. Continue no, I want you to see what you picked up and if there's something you want to... Let's see. Well, as we have been discussing the last few classes, <clears throat> that we want to concentrate from now on, not just practicing these, you know, sutras, but trying to perfect them in our lives. And I would like to keep going on that theme for the following weeks as well. And we have been working a little bit with the yamas and niyamas already. So I would like for this week to work especially with asana. Mm. So we don't just skip to the good part before we have perfected our posture. And I'm not talking here only about the posture that we are able to hold during meditation, but the posture that we are holding through life. And as long as we can in that asana of perfect stillness within ourselves throughout the day, no matter what's happening around us. And that's particularly the practice that I would like for each one of us to pay attention to to try to keep our spine straight throughout the day, especially, especially during the moments where we feel we can finally relax from our responsibilities, finally when we can sit on that couch for a couple of hours, or finally when I can pick up my phone and just scroll on Instagram, especially those moments. How is my spine? How is my posture? Is it still straight? Is my energy, is my life force still flowing upward in that moment of my day where I'm a little bit more tamasic than usual? When I'm just, you know, like, 
allowing myself to be lazy, to be relaxed in a different way. Because those moments will keep building up throughout the rest of our lives. Posture means I'm developing self-mastery. And I'm not talking about meditation. I'm talking every second, every moment of my daily life. And the more we bend our spine, the less we keep ourselves magnetic enough to keep interacting with the world around us from our center. I don't know if you have noticed how it's easier to deal with the world just a little bit after meditation. Your mind is calmer, you're more still, your spine is straight, you just feel so centered. Keeping your spine straight will help you to keep that centeredness. Starting from your physical body, I'm centered in myself. And you feel that that will help you also in relating to other people, communicating with other people. When you are with them, you are with them in body, mind, and soul. I don't know if you have noticed, sometimes people are talking with you and they just keep moving. They just, they just keep moving, turning around, and, and, and you just don't see them, they are with you. Their energy is somewhere else. They have not developed that self-mastery even within their bodies. So it's a very um, subtle thing to keep paying attention on. Of course, during our meditation, while you are cooking, how is your posture? When you are talking with other people, how is your spine? And in fact, the more we keep our spine straight, the more creativity, the more the flow of energy that can go upward to the upper chakras. We, we don't bend the spine. The spine is completely straight, so the flow of energy can move smoothly upward. So that's something I want for each one of us to start perfecting. So the more you can become aware that, oops, I'm reading a book or I'm with my phone, my spine is bent, let me just work on my asana, work on my posture, because this also reveals an attitude towards life. You not only are working with your physical body, you are projecting an attitude. I'm ready. My energy is high, I feel magnetic, I feel positive, I feel open, I feel centered to whatever life brings me. So let's all this week, as much as we can, to keep perfecting that posture, that asana that tells a lot about us and where our energy really is located in the body. So on that note, all of us, let's now consciously practice that asana, going into a very brief 
meditation. Working on that flow of energy that we have been now projecting outwardly. Let's reverse that process and interiorize that energy, withdraw that energy from the senses into your spine. And a perfect asana helps almost instantly to interiorize our life force. In fact, if you feel restless throughout the day, stop. And keep your posture and your spine straight and see what happens. You may feel a drastic shift of your energy from restlessness to instant calmness just by the posture of your body. And now let's add those ingredients that Patanjali recommends while perfecting our asana. to relax into that firmness, into that willpower. And appreciate the beauty that brings such posture that allows that life force of your body keep moving forward and upward. And visualize yourself for the coming days. Working on this particular aspect of your physical body, the posture of it, the importance as a yogi to keep a straight spine It lifts our heart. And everything seems to function even better. The organs within the body have more space 
to do their job. And to support our body. for our spiritual process. Let's make a resolution, each one of us, to become Arjuna. And let that bow be the tool to fight our daily battles. and our lower tendencies. With great energy, vigor, and a straight spine. Oh.